everybody, welcome. Good to have you with us. This is Mark Steiner. I am Mark Steiner, I mean to say. And uh, this, and uh, this is our 15th year, uh, which we'll announce numerous times for the Annapolis Summit. And we welcome all of you as part of this. Um, and I, let me just start by, first of all, before I introduce our first guest here before the governor comes up, I want to thank uh, all of the folks who have made this possible today. Um, starting with our major sponsor, our lead sponsor, the Maryland State Bar Association. Sarah Arthur is the leader of that, and she's sitting with me up here at this moment. Um, and Alexander and Cleaver, uh, Chimes, and the Maryland State Education Association. Uh, and they have been with us for the entire 15 years. So I want to thank them for their continued support for the Annapolis Summit. VPC Inc., which uh, always does all of our media and tapes these sessions, shoots them, and audio tapes them. They're with us. They've been our partners now for several years. And of course, their Daily Record, who's our major partner, our print partner, without whom none of this could happen because they know how to put on events, know how to do their work. And Suzanne Fisher-Hutner, their publisher, has been one of our uh, lead advocates, and this is just an amazing human being to work with. So I want to thank all of them for their support for making this 15th uh, summit work. Um, and uh, we, this will be podcast, so everything you say will be heard by somebody. <laughs> and uh, it'll be podcast, it'll be podcast on iTunes, it'll be on a number of Facebook sites, uh, it'll be on the Daily Record and other places, so this podcast will go out to thousands and thousands of people. Let me begin by introducing Sarah Arthur, who is the uh, leader of the Maryland State Bar Association, executive director, no, no, president. I'm the president. President. Uh, executive director is paid, you're not. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> At least not for the MSBA. So two quick questions. The first one is, why did you become the sponsor for the Annapolis Summit? Well, the Maryland State Bar has been involved um, in the legislative sessions um, back from the beginning. Um, attorneys, of course, have served on the legislature. Um, but for the Maryland State Bar, it's an opportunity for our membership um, to get involved in the legislative process. Um, we have a committee on laws, um, which um, reviews every piece of legislation uh, that is proposed um, each year. And then we also have substantive sections. They review legislation relative to uh, their particular uh, practice area. We've got real property, business law, uh, litigation, um, delivery of legal services. Those sections also take time to review legislation that's applicable to their area of the law. So that to me is interesting. I just want people to understand this. So the Maryland State Bar Association as a nonpartisan organization Correct. doesn't take positions on any legislative issue, Correct. but advises the entire legislature on the constitutional and legal questions involving legislation that's being proposed. Right. We look at legislation, both the constitutionality for consistency and also for practical impact uh, to make sure there's no unintended consequences and to make sure that the legislature understands um, other um, impacts uh, that legis proposed legislation may have. We don't take a position per se um, because keep in mind the lawyers that are reviewing this, we've got lawyers, we've got government lawyers, we've got uh, private practice attorneys, we've got judges. They're looking at it from both sides of the issue. So they're just looking for um, making sure that it's con constitutional, making sure it's consistent, and making sure it's enforceable. That's a trick. Many lawyers just don't agree with each other to have them all in one place at one time doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank you so much. Okay, you want to say something else? I'm sorry. No, no thank you very much. Thank and you and so it's much. a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So um, it's great to have the Bar Association with us and help us make this happen. Otherwise, it may not have happened. So it's 
good to have them on board with us. Let me now introduce our first guest for the first part of the 15th Annual National Summit, which is our governor, Larry Hogan. <laughs> governor, good to see you. See you. I like your choice in colors. It's very suits. nice. I like that suit. <laughs> Your, yours wouldn't fit me, I don't think. Uh, you don't think so? <laughs> so welcome. Good to have you with us again. It's great to be back. Um, so I guess let's just begin with um, you've been a very independent-minded political figure and Republican in this country, um, uh, to say the least, when it came to um, the last election, and you decided to vote for your father, <laughs> which I thought was a kind of interesting and, uh, and, a, and, a, and a good, good move as, as in terms of showing your independence. But now we've had this administration in Washington for the last year. And some of the things that have come out of this administration are going to deeply affect the state of Maryland, as we all know. So I want to tackle two of those things with you. Uh, one is taxes, the other is health care. We don't know what's going to happen to CHIP. And that could be a, a, a huge problem for young kids in this, in this state. Um, so, and people are already talking about what they want to see happen in terms of taxation, change in nature of taxation, should local taxes become charitable donations so they can be deducted by people. Does the windfall that may be coming to the state of Maryland could be 100 million, 400 million, I've seen different studies saying different things. So what are your proposals? What, what do you, how do we respond to what's coming out of Washington, D.C., which will deeply affect uh, most of us in the state of Maryland with our taxes. Okay. Well, well, first of all, I think most uh, Marylanders are really frustrated and fed up with what's going on in Washington, D.C., uh, and have been for a long time. Um, and they're also frustrated sometimes about things that happen here in Annapolis. And I really? think the, the last thing, <laughs> the last thing <laughs> I think, the last thing anyone would want to see is for Annapolis to become like Washington. And I think putting aside <clears throat> the partisanship, the blatant partisanship that we see in Washington, where nothing ever gets done. Um, and finding a way for us all to come together and actually make progress and reach agreement and compromise. And, uh, you know, I want to continue to focus on this session, at least for the next 90 days, put aside the politics and let's try to get some things done. On, uh, you're, you're right, um, I, I seem to be uh, uh, sometimes criticized by all of all the folks on the other side about Trump, Hogan, Trump, Hogan. And I have the same position as they did on Trump. None of us voted for him, uh, didn't support him, didn't go to the convention, said I wouldn't endorse him, didn't even vote for him. Uh, so uh, I know they want to tie me to Trump on every single issue because he's less popular than I am in Maryland, has a lower job approval. Um, but I don't think it's going to work because everybody knows we're not the same person. Um, but on those two issues, uh, we've been very out front. And uh, on health care in general, um, I've been a national leader in standing up against what's going on in Washington. Uh, back uh, about a year ago, <clears throat> I called in our entire uh, federal delegation, our two senators and all eight of our Congress uh, persons, and I, um, I pleaded with them to try to do something about fixing our health care system. And I said, look, um, folks on the, uh, on the Democrat side want to keep the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, exactly the way it is with no changes. And the Republicans wanted to just throw it out with no real solution or anything to replace it with. There are real issues that need to be fixed. Um, and uh, we have to look, costs have gone up. The good part is we've been able to cover more people and we don't want those folks to lose their coverage. Bad part is many hardworking middle class and lower, lower income folks had their premiums double. So um, I, I wanted to try to get everybody together to have a bipartisan, you know, common sense way to get this thing actually resolved. 
Unfortunately, Washington hasn't done that. Uh, so now we're looking at having to try to deal with some of those issues here. But I, uh, I'm on the executive uh, committee of the National Governors Association, which is a bipartisan group, all the Democratic, Republican governors, and was very outspoken, uh, opposed the House bill, opposed the Senate bill. Uh, it, nothing happened. Didn't, they, didn't, uh, they didn't change it. The current issues, CHIP, as you specifically asked about, um, I immediately uh, weighed in on CHIP and um, have been uh, lobbying the administration, folks in Washington, saying we have to protect CHIP. We all agree on that as well. Um, I still am hopeful that something can get done because I can't imagine uh, the folks in Washington aren't going to care about uh, you know, children's health. So uh, I think we can. If, if uh, that doesn't happen, then Maryland will have to come together and figure out what we're going to do to fix it. On taxes, um, you know, we're still waiting for Comptroller Francho to finish his review. Uh, but the initial, uh, what, we, what we know at this point is that most people in Maryland will see their federal taxes go down, uh, including middle class taxpayers and lower income taxpayers. Uh, however, um, their state taxes will go up. Um, the uh, the, the uh, personal exemption, the exemptions are, that's a, one of the most regressive taxes. So it's potentially up to a half a billion dollar tax hike for Marylanders on their Maryland taxes um, for lower income and middle class Marylanders. Um, when the bill was uh, passed in Washington, uh, both the Senate President, Speaker of the House, most of the fiscal leaders and the majority of the legislature uh, called on me uh, to say, um, we want to make sure that uh, Governor Hogan tries to protect the Maryland taxpayers who are going to be negatively impacted by this federal bill. And I immediately said, we are going to propose legislation uh, that will hold harmless all of those people so that they don't, the hardest working Marylanders uh, who need help the most, do not get a massive uh, tax increase in Maryland. Um, and uh, I would think that we would find unanimous agreement on that. But I heard some talk yesterday that some of them are now backpedaling, and they said, well, we didn't really want to protect the Maryland taxpayers. We need all that revenue now. Uh, they just wanted me to go protest in Washington, not actually fix the problem here in Maryland. So two, two quick questions. And folks, by the way, let me, what I did not say to you is the governor's only with us for a half an hour. So there's a mic. Where's our mic? Oh, it's back there. Sorry. So oh, folks are at the mic now. Good. So we're going to come to you. We just have this question. Turn it to the audience and let you all begin uh, to ask your questions as well. So the mic is back there to the left. But yeah, on, on those issues, just to wrap up, CHIP, hopefully the, the, they fix it in Washington. If not, we'll work with the legislature to figure it out. Uh, on the taxes, uh, hopefully uh, we will uh, work together with the uh, folks on the other side of the aisle and protect low, lower income and middle income Marylanders from, from getting tax hikes. So two, two quick things, and then we're going to get to the audience here. The first person up there will be Brian Sears from The Daily Record who always has the first question out of the box as our print partner. Um, so question number one is, is there's been this article in the New York Times this morning. There was all this huge push since we're not going to have an individual mandate from the federal government. You're not a big fan of the individual mandate, at least from my understanding, you're not a big fan of the individual mandate. Um, and there's a new proposal that, that would uh, allow people to become insured in the state of Maryland that a number of Democrats have put out there um, that uh, would uh, that, that people can use for insurance or to invest in insurance that ensures that, that the state is funded. So do you agree with that proposal coming up? Well, first and of all, I haven't seen the proposal and no one's discussed the proposal. I, I saw a news accounts yesterday about it. 
but you know. Well, were you, well, so when you read the news, what did you think? Busy. Well, Does it make you know, sense? The the uh, the mandate is basically a, a, a tax hike or a penalty. It's penalizing people and saying we're going to fine you if you don't go buy this insurance. And in in general, I'm not in favor of uh, uh, hiking taxes on hardworking Marylanders or penalizing people. And I'm I'm more of an incentive kind of guy. But um, you know, it, all of this is in the bigger picture. If the legislature um, does not want to work with us on protecting Maryland uh, taxpayers, the lower and middle income taxpayers from a somewhere between a half a billion and a billion dollar tax hike, uh, then there's no way we're going to add another burden on top of those folks. But in, we're willing to sit down and discuss it with the legislature, fixing and finding a way to deal with the mandates. But it's part of the whole broader picture of, of uh, what we're asking uh, Marylanders to do and fixing our health care system. Do you think that it is time for, as one Democratic state senator has posited, um, for Maryland to really now consider overhauling our tax system that we keep trying over the years, we can't get it done. I remember the debates we had around sales tax here in 2011 and more, whether that many people look at our tax structure as something from the industrial age that we've gone way beyond. So in other words, bring new revenue in here, we have to find new ways, new, new kind of tax structures that bring the money in that we need. Well, I, you know, I'm a long proponent of tax reform, but I think we have a different opinion of what that, what that does. I wanna see us reform it so that uh, we're not squeezing middle-class taxpayers, they wanna raise taxes and increase revenues. I don't think we have a revenue problem, I think we have a spending problem. Um, I, I ran for governor. Uh, I was a small business man who never had held elective office before. I ran for governor because I was frustrated that after 43 consecutive tax hikes, and they weren't from the industrial age, they were from you know eight years before I got here. Um, <laughs> 43 consecutive tax hikes <clears throat> took $10 billion more out of the pockets of struggling Maryland families and small businesses. And it crushed our economy. We lost 8,000 businesses, 100,000 jobs. And it's why I'm, I'm governor today. So to say that we're gonna overhaul the taxes again to raise them again is probably not a smart idea. But I'm all for trying to figure out how we make it a, a fair, more fair system and how we can give some breaks to retirees, um, uh, lower and middle income uh, taxpayers and small businesses. I'll come back to some things, but let me go to the folks in the mic. I promise I would do that. Brian Sears. Good morning, Governor. Good morning. Uh, in recent, in the last recent week, uh, Baltimore has made national news again with the uh, the issue of uh, climate and classrooms and children wearing coats. Um, what's the role of the governor and and the, even the state legislature in ensuring that tens of millions of dollars in reverted school construction and renovation money actually gets spent in the classroom to avoid these kinds of situations, uh, aside from just assessing blame at the local level? Yeah, well, that's a, obviously this is an issue that everybody in this state is uh, extremely frustrated about and concerned about. You know, I don't want to place blame, and we all want to come up with solutions, which we have tried to do. Uh, but the, the situation, this is something that uh, Comptroller Francho and I have been uh, sounding the alarm bell on for like three years about the lack of maintenance of our schools, um, the, the, the uh, antiquated HVAC systems where we had 10,000 kids sweating to death in the summer with no air conditioning and now we have kids freezing to death with no, uh, with no heat. Neither one of them is acceptable. Um, we, um, is the state invests $12,000 per year per student into Baltimore City Schools, uh, which is uh, three times, last year was three times more than the average in Maryland, it's at least two times every single year. 
Um, they, uh, the Baltimore City school system is the most, uh, is the fourth highest funded school system in America. Only three school systems out of 3,570 of them receive as much money. Every, the big issue is how do we make them more accountable for that money? And how do we make sure that things like this are managed better? And uh, so this, this uh, week I did a couple of things. One, we sent two and a half million dollars emergency funds um, not because I wanted to reward the adults who have failed so miserably, uh, but because we don't want to have our children freezing in schools. Um, so they, they can immediately fix these. But I didn't want to just turn it over to the inept uh, mismanagement of the Baltimore City School System. So the Department of General Services at the state will make sure that these additional emergency funds will, will be spent wisely to fix this immediate problem. But long term, we need more accountability. And uh, we also uh, introduced a, a measure this week that would provide, provide more of that. And uh, you know, Baltimore City is number one in America in administrative costs. Uh, and I'd like to figure out why so much of that money is spent on North Avenue and why we can't get it down into the classrooms where it actually helps kids. Uh, but yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna be holding them accountable. I mean, most of the money comes from the state. City of Baltimore, uh, in their last budget, 10% of their budget went to education. Uh, the average system in Maryland pays more than 50% of their local budget into education. The state has been paying most of the money, and yet we have no control. So we just hand over, you know, money, and then the school system, in many cases, misspends it. So is the answer more so, state control and accountability? We need more accountability, more control over the funds that we put in there from state taxpayers. So very quickly, thanks, Brian. Very quickly, then we'll come up to our next person here. Um, the... the Though you've put more money into school systems than before, most of the studies, the APA studies, show that the schools have been really underfunded. The Baltimore's been underfunded by $238 million annually. That's not true, but go ahead. Oh, it is true. I mean, you I can finish that. I mean, that, 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 and that you also Again, have... there, there's only three school systems in America that are funded better than the Baltimore City schools. But they also are facing... Every, we have record funded them. This will be our fourth budget in a year, uh, in fourth budget in a row. And last year, we put $24 million more into Baltimore City Schools than the legislature had put in under, under their mandates that the previous governor and the legislature set. This year, our budget puts $11 million more than the legislature wanted to. So, you know, I just don't agree that they've been seriously underfunded, not by the state. I think they've been seriously underfunded by the city, who has not stepped up to their responsibility. We know Baltimore City uh, needs more help than the rest of the state, uh, and we have been giving it to them but we also have to make them accountable. The, uh, just one more quick point, though. This, but, so, so, but Baltimore also has one of the largest disadvantaged populations in terms of money and race and other issues that, that face any other system in, this, in the state. It's true. So the, so, the, so the issues are much larger. The buildings are older. They don't have the Montgomery County money to put up in front to fix schools like they do and get paid back again. So which, which it's is not why as we say, put billions of dollars into the 21st century schools and are building new schools all over the city of Baltimore. And the state is building them instead of the uh, city. Uh, stadium Authority is overseeing the construction, and they're doing a beautiful job. But they have to uh, put one of the things I may propose is maybe they should also uh, be handling some of the uh, renovation projects, not just the total gut renovations, but um, fixing some of these problems that the city doesn't seem to be able to manage. But that money had to come out of, of pedagogical budgets to fix the schools. Look, in school construction money, <clears throat> Um, I think uh, we're going to be at uh, the highest level in more than a decade. New investment in school construction. 
and on the uh, operating per pupil spending, it's uh, three times what we spend on the rest of the state, and it's $12,000 per student. Uh, their total per, per pupil spending is nearly $18,000, and it's uh, the fourth highest in America. So we, what you're saying about underfunding is just basically not true. So let's go back to the audience. I promise to give folks a chance. So let's get these next three people at least four. We can get a chance in the next 20 minutes. Before the Good morning. Has to I'm leave. Betty Weller, president of the Maryland State Education Association. A hey, recent investigation, <laughs> a recent investigation by the Huffington Post found that a number of private schools in Maryland that receive boost vouchers use curricula that teach, among other things, that evolution is a hoax that Nelson Mandela was a Marxist agitator, and that modern psychology was invented by Satan. Should Maryland taxpayer dollars be spent teaching students such controversial and out of the mainstream material? Well, first of all, I don't read the Huffington Post and didn't see the article that you're referring to, but it sounds pretty, uh, pretty outrageous, and, uh, and uh, no, probably not, but I'm not aware of the situation. I'd love to hear more about it. Just, just to, uh, you know, here, here's another, complete fallacy that everybody, it's like this boost funding uh, was a bill by the speaker, Mike Bush. Um, we had a different bill. Our, my bill was called Boast, and our bill was to provide tax credits for people who donate to public or private schools that they would get a tax break, just like if they had donated to any charity. That was rejected. The speaker of the house wrote a new bill called Boost, that directly took taxpayer money and gave it to these private schools. Now, if you look on social media, you'll see Hogan and DeVos and these voucher systems. It wasn't even our bill. Uh, it passed by the legislature overwhelmingly. Uh, and it was written by Democratic legislators. And it was not my idea. Uh, but I think it's been helping a lot of kids get a, an opportunity. We we're talking about the failing schools in Baltimore City, giving kids, some poor kids, an opportunity, if their school is failing in their neighborhood, the opportunity to go uh, to a really high-performing um, Catholic school or Jewish uh, day school or, or whatever uh, a school is, is probably a good idea. And I, I agree with the Democrats in the legislature about that. Next. <coughs> Hi, good morning. Good morning. Kevin Large, No Kid Hungry Maryland. I'm sorry for my voice. Uh, Maryland Meals for Achievement is a highly successful state program started 20 years ago that provides free breakfast to all students in high-poverty schools. Funding currently only covers 54% of eligible schools. To see this program reach all eligible students, it needs an additional $4.9 million in the budget, recognizing that's a lot of money, but it would reach 148,000 more Maryland students. What is your plan in this year's budget to address this need? Thank you. Well, um, thank you for the question. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. I, I, I would have assumed that most of that uh, school lunch would be taken out of the monies that we're already putting into the schools, but. Um, if, if you got, I don't even know the details of your program, but I'd love to hear more about it. Sure, it's a state program, and it's for breakfast. What's it called? Maryland Meals for Achievement. Okay, well, love to hear more about it. Great. Can I, can I say more about it? Uh, uh, but not, not too much more. <laughs> okay. We have a lot of people here, but you can, yes. Thank, thank you, Mark, Daily Record, for doing this. Uh, Governor Hogan, uh, pleasure to talk with you. My name is Vinny DeMarco. I'm the president of the Maryland Citizens Health Initiative, and I want to first commend you, Governor, the Health Department, and the Exchange for doing such a great job in implementing the Affordable Care Act. Despite the attacks by Trump and Republicans in Congress, our open enrollment went very, very well, 154 million enrolled. It's wonderful. And I also want to commend you for the letter you wrote 
on uh, July uh, 26, 2017, opposing the so-called skinny repeal in Congress, which would have eliminated the individual mandate at the time. In that letter, you pointed out how important the Affordable Care Act and really made clear that you understood that the individual mandate is important for uh, keeping the Affordable Care Act strong. And that's why we proposed yesterday with top uh, leaders in the legislature this new proposal to, instead of an individual mandate in Maryland, now they got rid of it federally, a health insurance down payment, an historic new way to make the Affordable Care Act work by letting people, when they pay their, go to pay their taxes, if they don't have insurance, what they owe will go to get them insurance, unless they want it to go into the budget, but they can get them insurance. And I gave a copy of the proposal to my friend Kiefer Mitchell, and we'd love for you to look at it and be supportive of it, because Governor, I really believe that in the spirit of your letter of July 26, 2017, you should be all in favor of this proposal to build on the success that your administration has done in implementing the Affordable Care Act. So I hope you will support this new exciting proposal. Well, Vinny, thank you. Uh, it didn't really sound like a question, but I appreciate the. Uh... I, I, I'm asking you to support. I'm asking you to support. It, <laughs> it was a pretty good pitch, though. I, I, I'm asking uh, you to support. But, no, it, but, but seriously, thank you. I'm not sure if you came in. The very first question was about this. Um, and, uh, and thank you for recognizing that, uh, you know, I've been a national leader speaking out on these healthcare issues and, and fighting back, and I think we've been pretty successful. Um, let, me, uh, let me just say, I already said that we uh, are looking forward to taking a look at the proposal, and I don't want to, you know, we want to address the issue of individual mandates. I just haven't seen it yet, because you handed it to Kiefer Mitchell, who's in the back of the room, and uh, I'm sitting up here, but... Uh, Would you like me to bring it to you? Uh, we certainly... <laughs> Well, certainly will over the next 90 days, and uh, we're going to keep an open mind, and uh, we're all ears. We're anxious to talk with you and with the folks in the legislature and see if we can't, uh, you know, find something that works. So thank you. Um, the, the, the bigger issue on health care that we haven't touched on uh, that you should be pleased with is that uh, our biggest concern, in addition to Medicaid and the waiver, was Medicare. And we have, um, you know, we have a Medicare waiver in the state that was critically important. We're the only state in the nation that has this. We've been working for over a year protect that because it uh, will you know, save uh, Marylanders millions of dollars and it will keep hundreds of thousands of people on their health care coverage. And just this week, we uh, got an extension of that through the federal government. It's the only one that's happened in America. And uh, we got it signed and it protects Medicare in Maryland. And it was a tremendous achievement that our Secretary Dennis Schrader has been working on every day for the past year, uh, extremely hard, he and his team, and that I spent uh, a, a large amount of time with uh, two different secretary, uh, secretaries of health at the federal level and SEMA Burma at CMS, and it's a, it's a huge accomplishment with respect to health care. But on the, on the waiver, we're, we're going to take a look at the proposal. Matt, great. Thank you. So, thanks, Vinny. Good morning. Um, morning. My name is Charles Nichols. I am 16 years old. I live in Baltimore City. I'm a student leader at the intersection, and my question is for Governor Hogan. As a student who has lived and attended in some of the most crime-ridden neighborhoods in Baltimore City, such as Park Heights, Cherry Hill, Emerson Village, um, I can attest that the 343 murders in 2017 are not just a statistic. This reality impacts students' lives every day. And my question for you is, what role will the state play in supporting reduction programs and initiatives in Baltimore City? You mean crime, cr crime reduction? Crime reduction. What you mean? Yeah, Charles. Uh, is that, was it Charles? Yes. Yeah, Charles, thank you uh, very much for coming up here this morning. 
16-year-old uh, Baltimore City student uh, coming up this morning with a, a great question like that. I appreciate you being here. Um, you. We've been really focused on this. Uh, first of all, um, it, it, you know, you're in, uh, you've gone to school in some pretty tough neighborhoods, and I'm sure you've seen uh, some things that, uh, that uh, have been pretty disturbing, and you're very concerned, as most of the people are in those neighborhoods and everywhere in Baltimore City, and frankly across the state about the, the, uh, the, the increase in the murder rate. We've been working tirelessly, not only with uh, Mayor Pugh um, and with uh, Commissioner Davis to try to provide all the possible assistance the state can provide, uh, but I also have, have been, uh, I've called together all of our federal partners with the FBI, the ATF, the DEA, and all, uh, every single federal agency um, uh, for, uh, to talk, and U.S. prosecutors to talk about how we can get people that repeatedly uh, commit gun crimes off the streets and put them in jail. So because we have we have people that have been convicted, th you know, three times and uh, have 13 arrests on the record, and they're still out on the street shooting someone else. Uh, we're focused on that. I also convened all of our state and local partners. Uh, we must have 30 of the top law enforcement and prosecutors. Uh, we we come up with lots of ideas, and we've got multiple pieces of legislation geared towards crime in general and geared towards Baltimore City in particular. One of them is to uh, strengthen our RICO statute so we can take down entire criminal gang enterprises and it empowers prosecutors. And one of them is to make tougher mandatory sentences on repeat violent offenders uh, because they simply just keep being let back on the streets by the uh, judges in Baltimore City. So to follow up, thank you so much for the question. I, I, and I'm glad you all came down the intersection, brought a bunch of students here today. Every year we have students coming in from uh, Baltimore City to join these conversations and I have to full disclosure say that I'm on the board of directors of the intersection which is not so I just need to put that out there but but so thank you all for um, yeah. uh, being here this morning and uh, but it also ties into the other things we're talking so, about because we've been focused on uh, job training on uh, job opportunities on giving people hope for a better future that's why we've put uh, you know so much more money into Baltimore City schools um, that's why we're revamping the transit system so people can find ways to get to employment from where they live. Um, and it's, it, th these are problems that have developed, you know, for over decades, 50, 60 years, and they're not going to be solved overnight. But I can promise you that our administration, um, who doesn't have the direct day-to-day -day responsibility, is providing as much possible assistance and guidance. And um, uh, we've sent in. Uh, I think 300 different state officers into the city to assist them, maybe more, maybe 500 when we put together all the state agencies uh, to assist the local law enforcement. Um, we're helping serve warrants. We're uh, bringing, you know, we, we've coordinated all the state, federal, and local agencies, but crime is out of control in Baltimore City and in the neighborhoods that, that you, you know, went to school in, and we all want to do something about it. So, Governor, let me ask a quick question about that. So, just, so the... The, the poverty in Baltimore, place like Baltimore City, in Baltimore City. I just came yesterday from the Smithsonian where I was part of the Poor People's Campaign exhibit that took place in 68. And one of the things I said there was that I think that the poverty and, desol the poverty and desolation and hopelessness of poverty in 2018 is worse than it was in 1968. And with not just, with, with there's no, communities have been destroyed, abandoned houses, no jobs, no way to get to work. Um, I, they're desolate situations. So what is it beyond, now, I'm not saying you, mm -hmm. we should not get bad actors off the street, but what is it beyond that? I mean, whether uh, investing in pretrial intervention programs so the young people do not go to jail but are kind of brought back into community, 
or how you invest in jobs to ensure that people actually mm. have employment in communities, which is the only way we're going to get out of this. Right. Um, and There's a number of things. To empower communities. So how do you do that as well? We've been doing a lot of other things. I mentioned already the um, dramatic increases in school funding, uh, more than anywhere else almost in the country. Um, but in addition to that, we've been really focused on job training, bringing job. We've, uh, we've gone, since I've been governor, over three years, almost three years, from um, losing 100,000 jobs to gaining 130,000 jobs. In Baltimore City, the unemployment rate was over 10, and I think it's almost cut in half. I don't have the exact numbers now, but we have created jobs in Baltimore City, and we're providing job training in Baltimore City on the vacant houses. Um, I put $150 million of state money into Project Core. We've, we've taken down uh, 4,000 blighted properties in Baltimore City, and we've either re replaced them with a community-based uh, redevelopment project that provides maybe senior housing or, uh, or employment opportunities or needed retail services, or if there's no interest in that from anybody, we've turned them into parks rather than blighted, falling down, dangerous uh, you know, row homes where people are dealing drugs and uh, where they're, they're, they're dangerous because they may fall down on somebody. So w the state has uh, the transportation system. You know, we put $130 million into a new um, project linked, which is working way better than the antiquated system that hadn't been fixed in 50, 60 years. Um, but, um, you know, the, the city, uh, the state, and the federal government are going to have to take a look at all the different things we can do to, to change society and to change the inner cities, the uh, problems we have in urban America. But uh, it's something we've been very focused on, and we're having quite a bit of success. People love Project Core. They're now raving about the new transit system. They're, they're, we're making the improvements in the school. And we're doing great on jobs in Baltimore City and job training. So we have about two minutes left with you, I think maybe three minutes at the tops. So um, make another quick question here then. Hi, good morning. My name is Jackie Cohen-Roth. I won't tell you how old I am right now. <laughs> uh, I'm founder of Cannabis MD. Our focus is on healthcare provider and healthcare consumer uh, education and engagement surrounding medical cannabis. Um, got a very hot topic in uh, policy right now with AG Sessions' comments last week, the rollback of the Cole memo, and the Rohrbacher Farr amendment coming up for vote. Um, what, as a legislative leader, leader of our state, as well as a businessman, a lot of people have invested millions of dollars in our state's economy with medical cannabis, as well as the benefits that uh, it's going to bring to our residents. Uh, what do you have to say about what's going on right now with medical yeah, well, cannabis great. policy? Yeah, thank you very much. So I supported medical cannabis. Um, I think I may have been the only, I was the only Republican uh, uh, who was running in 2014 that did. Um, and uh, it was kind of a disaster when we got in, quite frankly, and uh, nothing had been done for several years. And so uh, we replaced the entire cannabis commission. We uh, hired a new executive director, and now we're finally getting people like you that are able to start uh, opening businesses and get, get this, this needed uh, you know, medical uh, uh, help to folks that really need it. With respect to what's going on at the federal level, um, the uh, sessions, uh, uh, t there's a conflict about, you know, this is, comes down to, I guess you're talking about the, uh, the, if you own a gun, you can't have a medical license, and if you have a medical license, you can't get a gun license. That's the basic issue that sessions was talking about. Um, we've uh, asked the Attorney General to uh, decide this issue and how the federal law is going to impact state law. We have a two totally different opinions, I think, coming out of the lawyers for the Cannabis Commission and the lawyers for uh, state police, and they both work for Brian Frosch. So we've asked him to sort this out and give us an opinion as to how the federal law 
uh, will impact uh, the cannabis uh, in the state and, and, uh, and how we can continue to move forward and uh, what his proposals are legally. Uh, I'm not a lawyer and don't know how to deal with it, and I'm not familiar with the uh, amendment in Congress because I don't serve in Congress, and we've been pretty busy <laughs> focused on Maryland. So, so how, how, did, how do we ensure, this is going to be a big thing in the legislature, that, that African Americans in the state of Maryland <clears throat> take part in this lucrative industry which is being cut off from most black folks in yeah. Maryland, A, and B, as a Republican, um, why is this industry not just let, allowed to grow? Why does it have to be structured and restricted, restricted it rather than letting it flow? It could be a huge business for the state of Maryland. So those two quick things. What was the first part again? I wasn't paying attention because we're over the time limit and I thought I was leaving. But. <laughs> I don't want to keep you much. It's going to come up in the next hour as yeah. well. But the question is that African Americans in the state yeah, of Maryland yeah, yeah. Okay. do not have licenses. Yeah. So uh, the, uh, the, previous, the cannabis bill that we're working under, this law was passed prior to me becoming governor. It was passed by the legislature, signed into law by Governor O'Malley. It was, the prime sponsor was the chairman of the Flat Caucus. Um, they came to me last year concerned that, um, and I was concerned, that there wasn't enough diversity among the licenses. Um, and they wanted us to do something about it. And I said, the only way you do something about it is if you, the legislature, uh, you know, actually changes the law or comes up with it. My concern is, yes, we need to do what we can. It's outrageous that we don't have more uh, minorities uh, that were able to obtain licenses. Um, but, and, and I believe there will be some changes in this legislative session. Um, we have been supporting the industry. The industry is now finally uh, about to open in Maryland after three years of you know, a bunch of not, nothing happening. Uh, it's finally coming to fruition. Um, but I'm concerned that the legislature doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, if they put in legislation that uh, you know, flips the table over and throws out the commission and uh, the, there's going to be lawsuits all over the place from all these companies if, they, uh, if the rules change. Um, so, but, you know, if there's some way to uh, provide some expansion uh, to make sure that we get more diversity and inclusiveness that doesn't affect or, you know, throw everything back to square one and, and make us spend four more years getting up to speed, and we're willing to sit down and talk with the legislature about that. Uh, but um, you know, it's, it's something that uh, I think, I know you, your next two guests probably should address that one. They will. All right, thank you very much. Governor, thanks for being here. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This program was produced and edited by Calvin Perry with assistance from our intern, Nora Belbidia. You can download the podcast and more at steinershow.org and on iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for The Mark Steiner Show. And please let us know what you think. Write me at mark at steinershow.org. We'll be back in a couple more days with a brand new podcast.